Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network, where we expose the lies and emphasize the truth about health in our modern world. Welcome, everybody. Today is June 26, 2015. My name is Jonathan, and I'll be your host for today. Joining me in our virtual studio from all across the planet are Doug, Erica, Tiffany, and Gabby. We've got a full compliment today. Uh, and Zoya will be joining yeah. us later for the pet health segment. Hi, everybody. Hi, everybody. Uh, Hello. So today our topic is uh, environmental toxins and pollution. Um, and we all agreed when we were talking a little bit before the show that this might be kind of a depressing topic. But as with most things that are depressing, it's it's worth facing up to so you can gain a better perspective on objective reality, what's actually going on in the world. It's better to know about these things than to just kind of pretend that it doesn't exist. So we're going to dive a little bit into it. Um, we've got a ton of information. So this is actually going to be more of like an overview show. I think, and we'll introduce a lot of these topics, and then we'll plan on doing some future shows that narrow down uh, specifically on each of the topics. Um, we're going to talk about air pollution, uh, agricultural pollution, uh, radiation, uh, Agent Orange, uh, oil spills, water pollution, so a lot of different things. So we'll try to keep it uh, somewhat of an overview for everybody so we don't overwhelm uh, you and ourselves as well. Um but to start out, for let's do a little connecting the dots with some recent articles in the news. And uh, I'm going to start with an article here on SOT that was about how air pollution kills 3.2 million people around the world every year. And this is from a recent uh, WHO study. Uh, and it's actually only half of the, uh, the figure. I was somewhat surprised to, to find out, although not entirely surprised that if you total up the figures that the WHO, the World Health Organization, found out about air pollution and its uh, total deaths around the planet, it's more like 6.1, 6.2 million a year. Um, wow. 3.2, yeah, the 3.2 million figure comes from specifically outdoor air pollution. Um, and it actually tops the, uh, the death tolls from uh, HIV and malaria combined worldwide. Hmm. So air pollution kills more people than HIV and malaria. Um, so I'll just read a few of the top points from this article here. Um, it says that uh, the WHO's findings reveal outdoor particulate air pollution results in 3.2 million premature deaths each year, more than the combined impact of HIV, AIDS, and malaria. Uh, this is the first detailed analysis of how improvements in particulate air pollution worldwide would yield improvement in health and where those improvements would occur. Um, so particulate matter is defined uh, as being smaller than 2.5 microns, which can reach deep into the lungs. And breathing particulate matter is associated with increased risk of heart attack, stroke, and other cardiovascular disease, respiratory illnesses such as emphysema and lung cancer. Um, the primary sources of particulate matter come from fires, coal power plants, cars, and agricultural and industrial emissions. Um, more in low-income countries, uh, this particulate matter comes mostly from burning coal, wood, crop waste, and animal dung for heating and cooking, uh, as well as from the open burning of rubbish, uh, which is a big problem in China. Um, it says also here that uh, co-authored uh, by Dr. Julian Marshall at the University of Minnesota said, 
uh, we were surprised to find the importance of cleaning air not just in the dirtiest parts of the world, which we expected to find, but also in cleaner environments like the U.S., Canada, and Europe, which I thought was interesting mm-hmm. because uh, calling the U.S. a cleaner environment, um, I mean, yeah. I guess, you know, there are there are parts of the U.S. that are still somewhat pristine, but they are few and, few and far between. The major cities of the U.S. are just as bad um, if not worse than a lot of major cities in other parts of the of the world. Um, however, China does kind of top the uh, the scales. Um, some of their cities are actually black uh, on a satellite photo. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, it says also here that uh, meeting WHO guidelines in clean regions could reduce premature deaths from outdoor pollution by more than half a million per year, which I thought was interesting because of the total death toll is 3.2 million, and you're only reducing it by 0.5 million. There's still a lot of people dying from outdoor air pollution. It doesn't seem like we're making much headway if that's really the case. Um, so that was uh, that was a, a recent article from Sat uh, in the Health and Wellness section. Air pollution kills 3.2 million people around the world every year. Um, let's see. Next up, uh, Tiffany, do you want to? talk about this DDT exposure article? Sure, thanks. Um, um, Well, DDT was originally referred to as the miracle insecticide because it was able to kill harmful insects. And uh, DDT is in the family of something called organochlorines, which uh, an organic compound where one or more of the hydrogen atoms are replaced by chlorine atoms, which makes it resistant to degrading. DDT accumulates in the fatty tissues of animals and humans. Um, in the 1950s, there were DDT springs in American neighborhoods, and it was used as a household disinfectant. It was also used as a disinfectant, a bodily disinfectant during uh, World War II in the Nazi camps. Um, It's also been used to treat crops, forests, and rivers. From 1950 to 1980, more than 40,000 tons of DDT were sprayed around the world every year, and it was only in 1972 that the agricultural use of DDT was banned. So there was an article on SOT called Study Finds DDT Exposure in Utero Resulted in Daughters with Nearly Four Times of Breast Cancer. Um, So in this study, they reviewed blood tests for DDT levels in uh, over 20,000 women who had given birth in Oakland, California during the 50s and 60s when DDT was widely sprayed on lands and agriculture. Then they followed uh, 9,300 women born to the women who were initially exposed to DDT. They followed them from 1959 to 1967, and they found that these women the daughters of the original women were found to have 3.7% risk of breast cancer if they were exposed to DDT in utero. So DDT is now banned in the United States, but really who needs DDT when you have glyphosate? But we'll get into that later. Um, So the effects of DDT still linger on even though it was banned in the 70s. But unfortunately, it's still widely used in Africa and in Asia to help control malaria-spreading mosquitoes. So this could be just one explanation and a long list of explanations for the increased rates of breast cancer. 
that we're seeing all over the world. Hmm. Back to you guys. <laughs> well, um, let's see. Next up we have uh, Erica's got some interesting points for us here on the nanotechnology. Yeah, so on the happy side of news, <laughs> um, <laughs> this happiness the, with nanotech? <laughs> yeah, it too will change your life. <laughs> so um, the Cornucopia Institute just released a document about called No Definitive No on Nanotechnology. And um, this came out on June 19th. Basically, it's a discussion about using nanotechnology in organic, in uh, certified organics. And so um, the organic community has obviously spoken out against using uh, nanotechnology in their uh, products. And uh, so it says the USDA National Organic Program issued a new guidance in March that allows companies to petition for use of human-engineered nanoparticles, materials in organic product production and processing. And so, for those who may not know, nanoparticles um, are tiny particles measured in nanometers, about a billionth of a meter. And due to their incredibly small size, nanoparticles ingested in food are fundamentally different and can move through the body and through cell structures in unknown ways. So basically, you know, there's this ongoing discussion about whether they should allow these nanoparticles in organic foods. The organic industry does not want it, but uh, the USDA is saying that they're going to discuss it, right? So, which means it will probably happen. Um, mm -hmm. In the article, it says, perhaps not coincidentally, the USDA announced this spring that the agency has awarded $3.8 million in grants for nanotechnology research by nine universities. And, you know, we know that from, well, maybe we don't know, but from reading and following health and wellness articles on SOT, a lot of these grants go to people that are going to say, yeah, that nanoparticles are fine and, and there's nothing wrong with them. What I found interesting about this was that these nanomaterials uh, are already being added to conventional foods, fruit, vegetable coatings, food packaging materials, supplements, and cosmetics. Titanium dioxide, which we talked about in our sun topic show, um, for example, is used to increase the whiteness of milk, yogurt, and dairy <laughs> substitutes. Nanomaterials are also used in chocolate, salad dressing, cereal, pasta, and other foods. So, in response to consumer pressure in recent years, major food industry players have announced they are moving away from nano products, materials in their products, and these companies include Kraft, McDonald's, and Dunkin' Donuts, which ple pledge to remove titanium dioxide in its powdered sugar. <laughs> I found kind of interesting. So... Just so our uh, listeners know, no federal agency regulates the use of nanomaterials in food, and there's no requirement to list them on product labels. Mm. And um, yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Yeah. And yeah. Um, 
basically one more little thing about the concern about these uh, nanoparticles is when you ingest them, they pass into the blood and lymph system, circulate through the body, and reach potentially sensitive sites such as the spleen, brain, liver, and heart. And I think in Europe back in 2010, um, they want they uh, European Parliament Environmental Committee said nanotech products should be withdrawn from the market until there is more known about their safety. So I'm not sure mm-hmm. if they withdrew them from the market or if they're labeled in Europe, but yeah, here in the the good old U.S. of A. We are possibly going to have nanoparticles in what is considered certified organic food, which, you know, there's a lot of controversy over that, but that's for another show. So. Hmm. Hmm. There's going to be a new term, nano-organic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you can't even escape by buying organic now. Now you're just going to be forced to grow your own food. Exactly. Yeah. And even then, ah. <laughs> like the the world is actually turning into a William Gibson novel these days. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. It's kind well, of Doug, interesting you wanna... that you mentioned. Uh, oh, sorry, I was just going to say that no. it's interesting that you mentioned um, uh, supplements, Erica, because there's actually um, I've seen a few supplements coming onto the market that are using uh, nanotech um, as a means of delivering. Um, the you know the the beneficial uh, properties of the, um, the the supplement. So one I'm thinking of in particular is uh, is a turmeric supplement. So the the active constituent curcumin. Um, I've seen nanoparticle curcumin um, on on the market, and and the idea being that it's uh, better for kind of delivering that medicinal property. But I I don't know. I'm I'm kind of torn about it. I don't know whether that would be a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, it's one thing to have nanoparticles that are harmful, but I'm wondering if nanoparticles that are actually uh, good for you could it could actually be a beneficial thing. Well, yeah, I've read that about colloidal silver. That colloidal mm. silver is is nanoparticles of silver. Um, what I find interesting about what you're sharing about the supplements is that it's actually even labeled that on the yeah, label. Yeah. So maybe Canada has labeling where they have to put that there because yeah. in the U.S. you wouldn't find that, you know, nanoparticles on any label. Yeah, I don't know if they're 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 required to because they're they're talking about it as if it's a benefit. You know, it's like, oh, hey, this is a nanoparticle, so that's good. Um, so they're kind of promoting it themselves. I, I don't know if that there's any any rules about about disclosing it. Probably not. I would think it's kind of used as a as a marketing ploy in a way because it's mm-hmm. sort of a tech it's a tech related term. Um, it seems mm-hmm. modern. You know, if I see colloidal silver or nano silver, I might go for the nano just because it sounds cooler. If I didn't know. Yeah. Psychology of the magic. Yeah. Well, Doug, do you want to enlighten us a little bit on uh, fracking and what that's been doing lately? There's another article here. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, fracking. It is a huge topic and something that could probably be um, dedicate a whole entire show to in and of itself, but I'll try and, and keep it brief here. So there was an article um, on SOT, uh, originally published in Sputnik on July, uh, sorry, June 19th, and it's called Fracking Region in Texas Shows Incredibly Alarming Levels of Water Pollution. So it's a new study out of the University of Texas at Arlington. 
um, and they looked at the uh, Texas's Barnett Shale areas, um, which uh, revealed, quote, inc incredibly alarming levels of contamination, um, with fracking being the prime suspect. Uh, it was a study of the groundwater near uh, Barnett Shale, which covers 5,000 square miles of North Texas, including Fort Worth. Um, yeah, they showed a map, actually, of, of, of the area that's affected by it. And it's basically all of Texas. I mean, it's a, well, it's a huge amount of Texas. Um, this is being called the most uh, comprehensive study of its kind. Um, while the study does not claim to definitively establish that fracking as a source of groundwater contamination, it does document a, so a strong association and says the findings should be an impetus for further monitoring and analysis of groundwater quality. Uh, the results of the two-year test published on Wednesday uh, in, a trade journal, uh, in the trade journal Environmental Science and Technology uh, show that groundwater contamination with multiple volatile organic carbon compounds throughout the region, including various alcohols, the BET, or BTEX family of compounds, and uh, several chlorinated compounds. Um, the study's lead author, Dr. Zach Hildebrand, told WFAA News that all chemicals found are associated with the fracking industry. So, you know, there's no direct um, association, but basically all the chemicals they've, they found are ones that are used in fracking. Um, so the author said, uh, when you find a BTEX compound with chlorinated compound with an anti-corrosive uh, agent all in the same water well, it's pretty shocking evidence that there's been a problem. Uh, the only industry that uses all of those simultaneously is the oil and gas industry. Uh, the study collected 550 uh, samples from 550 water wells across 13 uh, Texas counties. Um, the oil and gas industry has been quick to point out that correlation does not equal co uh, causation. Uh, hydraulic fra uh, fracturing or fracking is when they inject uh, fracturing fluid, which is a mix of water, sand, and toxic chemicals into a well. Uh, the pressure causes the rocks surrounding the pipe to fracture, and these cracks are held open to allow natural gas to escape, which is then collected. Uh, a there's a potential risk of groundwater contamination and quality de degradation. Um, just a couple of uh, interesting facts about fracking. Um, it uses about 70 to 140 billion gallons of water to frack 35,000 wells across the U.S. each year, and, and that's equal to the annual water consumption of 40 to 80 uh, cities with a population of 50,000 people. Um, yeah, so they're using up, like just in and of itself, are using up tons of fresh water. Um, fracking produces millions of gallons of wastewater, and the gas industry has been experimenting with different ways to dispose of it, uh, most of those being dumping it. Um, it uses 300,000 to 4 million pounds of pro uh, propens, which is the sand, or they also will use ceramic beads. Um, and while the chemicals only make up uh, 0.5 to 2% of the volume of the fracking fluid, that amounts to about 330 tons per year of all these chemicals being uh, dumped into the, into the surrounding area. Um, the 550 samples that the UTA study were taken uh, from 350 residential wells, 159 wells uh, used for agriculture, and 141 municipal or public wells uh, ser serving the Dallas-Fort Worth area. The results showed elevated, elevated levels of 10 heavy metals, 19 different chemical compounds, including what is known as BTEX, or benzene, toluene, ethyl benzene, and xylenes, uh, which are chemicals used in the uh, oil and gas processing. 
Um, of particular concern were a handful of samples where the levels of benzene exceeded EPA safety limits. Methanol and ethanol used in fracking as anti-corrosive and gelling agents were also present at ele elevated levels. Um, so the study's lead author said these compounds are carcinogenic, uh, calling benzene a nasty, nasty chemical. You wouldn't want to be drinking any amount of that. Uh, just a little bit of background here, um, just to give uh, a, a bigger picture on fracking. Um, in July of 2011, Mike Ludwig at Truthout, uh, which was published on uh, SOT, uh, reported 12,000 earthquakes in Arkansas that were reported by geologists to be caused by fracking. Uh, the Arkansas Oil and Gas Commission placed a ban on fracking uh, wastewater wells in the area at that time as a result of this. Um, there were three different gas companies injecting fracking wastewater near an active fault, which you just kind of have to slap your forehead on that one and say, what were they thinking? Um, so it's not just the pollution aspect. There's also the fact that it causes this instability in uh, the ground um, and especially if it's near any kind of active fault, which is just, you know, just ridiculous. But, it, but anyway, um, in June of last year, there was a study uh, in the ACS Journal of Environmental Sciences and Technology that reported that aside from the toxicity of the fluid itself, waste fluids from fracking are likely picking up tiny particles in the soil that attract heavy metals and other chemicals with possible health implications for people and animals. Um, High-profile spills and, in some places, legal applications of these liquids to land have raised alarms. Uh, research has linked fracking to groundwater contamination that could have major health effects. But another factor that no one really addresses could play a role are colloids. Uh, these are tiny pieces of minerals, clay, and other particles um, that are concerned because they attract heavy metals and other environmental toxins and have uh, been linked to groundwater contamination. Uh, there's just a quote from the article here. This study indicates that infiltration of flowback fluid could turn soils into additional source of groundwater contaminants such as heavy metals, radionucleotides, and microbial pathogens. Um, so then, so this is yet again another problem with fracking. I mean, it's not just the, the, the toxicity of the fluid itself, but the fact that it could kind of um, concentrate and collect um, other pollutants and kind of end up concentrating those and causing even more um, harm. Um, and finally, in an article in The Ecologist in June of 2014, uh, the author Paul Mobs uh, was writing about uh, the uh, fracking situation in, uh, in the UK and Europe. Um, he quoted the UK energy and business minister, Michael Fallon, in the UK, uh, in the UK as saying, in the House of Commons, he actually said, there are no examples from the United States of hydraulic fracturing contaminating groundwater because, as the honorable gentleman will appreciate, the fracturing takes place very much deeper than any groundwater levels. Um, as Mob says, uh, this is an outright lie. Um, there's been plenty of, of, of examples of, um, of contamination. Um, but he says, you know, who cares because, uh, you know, uh, Fallon will never be held accountable for these lies since all parties in the parliament, other than the Greens, are either supportive or noncommittal on fracking. Um, in fact, there is now a lot of independent, peer-reviewed scientific information which flatly contradicts uh, government and industry assertions that fracking is safe. Dobbs reports that one of the few public bodies which might, by now, have carried out an independent scientific review of the evidence, the Royal Commission on uh, Environmental Pollution, uh, was disgracefully abolished within the first year of the coalition government coming into power. 
Um, he also calls out the media as doing a damn poor job evaluating the criti and critically presenting the government's arguments. Uh, Dobbs concludes, we can only we can talk about our declining democracy, we can talk about corporate power and the manipulation of the media, but in the final analysis, what this means is that, in their eyes, you are not important to the prosecution of their greater political project. And if they can do this for something as awful as fracking, what else is on their agenda? So that's that's a bit of an overview on fracking. There's a lot more to talk about, but you know, obviously, uh, there's time constraints here, and maybe we don't want to lay it all out in one show to get everybody completely depressed. Oh, juicy detail. <laughs> it sounds like we should do a show on fracking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's go to uh, to Gabby here um, for our last uh, connecting the dots article on uh, food contamination. Do you want to go over that a yeah, little bit, Gabby? Yeah, sure. It's another side of the same problem in regards it concerns food, you know, food safety. Um, the title of the article is Each Week Products Are Found Contaminated with Allergens, Pathogens, Turkey Food Matter. So it starts by saying that the U.S. has a high, highly industrialized and centralized food system where 96% of the population relies on 4% of the other uh, of four percent of the population for food, so that is interesting because it's the same statistics found in some psychopathy articles. That psychopathy has an incidence of four or six percent. I thought that was interesting. It basically mm -hmm. says that ten mega corporations own and produce all the brands at the grocery store shelf, and there are several problems with this. And one, which is overreliance in such a few, brings several. Um, problems with contamination. To put just one example, this week, 14 brands of bottled water were recalled over contamination with E. coli, which is basically E. coli contamination. It's pool water, basically. So, that, mm. yeah, your branded water was pool water. <laughs> and, um, yeah. and the article gives um, a few examples of what can happen, typically in a matter of a few days. So, Three events happened on June 10. First, Walgreens co uh, Company in Illinois recalled nice powdered mini donuts because they had mold. On the same day, in Colorado, Vitamin Cottage Natural Food Markets um, recalled uh, a natural grocer's brand of macadamia nuts because they were potentially contaminated with salmonella. And salmonella can cause very serious diseases in young children or the elderly. Um, on the same day, a Wisconsin firm voluntarily recalled its potato salad because it was potentially contaminated with Listeria monocytosin. Now, this is an organism that can cause very serious meningitis, um, mm -hmm. infection of the brain, you know, in young children, in the elderly, and those who have weakened immune systems, which nowadays is uh, quite a lot of people. And for the healthy individuals, um, they basically uh, fell sick with high fever, severe headaches, stiffness, diarrhea, and so forth. It can cause miscarriages in pregnant women as well. Now, on the day before, on June 9, uh, Big Easy Food Louisiana Cuisine, which is an establishment in Lake Charles, recalled 93,000 pounds of raw and cooked, and cooked stuffed chicken products because it had wheat. 
and it was supposed to be gluten-free. So, well, too bad for mm. all those gluten-intolerant people trying to stay on the diet by eating chicken. That didn't happen. Huh. Um, <laughs> several days before, on June 4th, a Santa Barbara smokehouse recalled its smoked, old smoked salmon from March 1st to April 8th, 2015, because it was potentially contaminated again with Listeria monocytogenes. And the list goes on and on, you know, um, uh, unopened frozen ground tuna products with salmonella. This was discovered by the CDC. And in short, the author of the article concludes that beyond being lied to about our food and packaging, everything from not being told if our food is genetically modified to the entirely misleading names on ingredient lists, practically every day or two, Something horribly wrong is found in with our food that could potentially damage or kill us if we eat it. Then what happens when 46% of the American or when mega corporations are in charge of our food? Mm. So, back to you guys. Yeah. It's kind of indicative of a broken, a broken food distribution system when so yeah. much is going wrong with it. Especially when you collect all the information in one spot and kind of really take a look at it, it's like, whoa! Why is anybody? Yeah, really this bad? is just this is just the stuff we're hearing about. Can you imagine all the things they keep secret? Yes, exactly. And these products have like natural brands, like natural beans and natural that. Yeah. Well, thanks, Gary. I guess uh, we'll we'll uh, jump right into our topic here um, <clears throat> for the day where we're talking about pollution, continuing with the uh, the good feelings all around. <laughs> uh, um, so I'm, I'm going to start us off by covering uh, air pollution a little bit, and I've been doing some research on this uh, this week. And, um, I mean, depending on your perspective on the world, uh, I would say this is nothing that's too shocking. However, it's it certainly um, is kind of uh, depressing. Um, but just to uh, just to give a I'll, I'll try to keep it brief and uh, give a quick overview here of the major pollutants uh, that are produced by human activity across the planet. Um, sulfur oxides, uh, usually produced by volcanoes uh, and also by various industrial pro uh, processes, um, mostly by industrial processes, uh, but it is also emitted by volcanoes when they go off. Um, nitrogen oxides, carbon monoxide, which most people are aware of, also volatile organic compounds, VOCs. A lot of people are aware of those. Uh, you'll see that in, like, uh, sealants or any kind of um, uh, paint, uh, aerosol, uh, spray paint, that kind of thing, contains VOCs. Um, it's an extremely, uh, quote-unquote, efficient greenhouse gas, uh, and uh, it also um, prolongs the life of methane in the atmosphere. Uh, actually, it creates ozone, and the ozone prolongs the life of methane in the atmosphere, which I thought was interesting. Um, particulates, uh, which I mentioned in the uh, in the first article that I went over, particulate matter, uh, which is just any kind of fine, fine particle around 25 microns that's uh, suspended in the air uh, or in a solid or a liquid. Um, persistent free radicals, um, frequently linked to cardiopulmonary disease, metals such as lead and mercury uh, and arsenic as well. Chlorofluorocarbons, 
uh, ammonia. Um, odors are also considered uh, air pollution, um, which, you know, it depends. Something smells bad. Uh, it's not necessarily bad for you. However, it is an indicator. Um, I think most people who have done any kind of traveling across the states have driven past something like a, a paper uh, mill, and you can just smell that, that, you know, in the air for a couple miles around it. Um, radioactive pollutants, uh, ground-level ozone, um, and there's a number of others that are just really long, unpronounceable names. But the point being, there's a lot of things that contribute to uh, air pollution across the world, not just in the United States or in industrial countries. So, as I mentioned at the, at the beginning, one of the things I thought was interesting is that this, this figure recently released by the WHO of people worldwide that die from air pollution is, is above 6 million a year. Uh, roughly half of that is from outdoor air pollution, and roughly half is from indoor air pollution. Um, and I was curious, uh, at first I was like, well, what is indoor air pollution? Uh, when you look at it, it becomes pretty obvious because across the world, there are actually about 3 billion people, um, essentially half of the population of the planet, uh, that cook and heat with solid fuels uh, inside the home. Um, now, this, if you have an efficient uh, you know, uh, mechanism of doing this, then it's not necessarily a problem. But a lot of people, especially in underdeveloped countries, don't have uh, efficient methods of venting their living space. And so they burn, um, you know, animal dung, coal, uh, wood, pretty much whatever kind of wood they can find. And then the smoke lingers in the home, and especially carbon monoxide is a big culprit there, but it hangs out, and these particulate matters fill up their living space. And so there's, you know, roughly half of the overall deaths from air pollution are caused from specifically from that indoor air pollution. Um, looking at uh, this study, which was released in The Lancet on June 8th of this year, uh, it's called Global Burden of Disease, Injuries, and Risk Factors Study uh, 2013 although it was published this year. Um, it contains a, a big section uh, related to air pollution and uh, air quality around the world. And so some of these facts uh, I thought were interesting. Um, like, for instance, uh, in 2011, China built as many coal plants as Texas and Ohio have combined total in those states. Hmm. Um, uh, in California, uh, asthma is the leading cause of school absenteeism. Uh, so you might think it was any kind of basic illnesses, but it's actually uh, asthma is the leading cause of, of kids missing school. Um, and I, I did some, some further looking into that because um, I have a number of friends that are from California, and I've always heard uh, stories about you know Los Angeles and, and especially um, San Bernardino as well. San Bernardino is the largest county in the United States, and so I looked that up on the uh, on the EPA website. They have a spot uh, if you go to EPA.gov/airdata/slash uh, actually it's just slash air data. Uh, you can do a search there and get a report on any year or any part of the country. And so, just doing a general search for last year for 2014 on on air quality. Um, California rated the worst in pretty much everything, uh, especially carbon monoxide and in ozone. Uh, San Bernardino County uh, was the highest in ozone and the third highest in carbon monoxide. 
well, Los Angeles is the second highest in carbon monoxide, both uh, for one hour exposure and for eight hours of exposure. Um, so, uh, and that makes sense when you look at the this the scale of uh, automobiles that are used there. Um, you know, there's just so much exhaust being kicked out uh, in that area. But then, interestingly, if you look on the other side of the scale, not just from carbon monoxide and ozone, um, looking at other things like uh, heavy metals, and let me just pull this up here, um, there was another report called America's Top Power Plant Toxic Air Polluters, and apparently Pennsylvania ranks number one for arsenic and lead. Uh, Ohio uh, ranks number two for mercury and selenium. Indiana, uh, third for chromium and nickel. Kentucky uh, is number two for arsenic, and Texas ranks number one for mercury and selenium contamination. And that's those heavy metals being kicked out by electric power plants uh, into the atmosphere. So um, on the you know in the Midwest and on the East Coast, it looks like you have more heavy metals in the air from industrial contamination, and then on the West Coast, you have more of these um, you know uh, ozone and carbon monoxide from uh, automobile exhaust. Um, so it's it's pretty bad all around, and that's I'm not going to touch on uh, on radiation even. Uh, Gabby's going to go over that a little bit later, but that's a big aspect of, of air pollution as well. So just going over some general uh, facts on, on air pollution, um, the average American breathes two gallons of air per minute, which means around 3,400 gallons of air each day uh, that each person inhales. Uh, inhaling air pollution takes away about one to two years of the typical human life on average. Now, that might actually be, that might actually be a low rating because of these statistics that have just come out about premature deaths um, talking you know, 6 million a year across the planet. Um, mm -hmm. uh, Human-created uh, air pollution, not things that are created from, from like volcanoes or dust storms or anything like that with particulate matter, but just stuff that's emitted by human activity actually makes up 10% of the total atmosphere of the planet. So 10% of the volume of the atmosphere is made up by things that we kick out into the atmosphere. Um, and air pollution itself is not actually that recent of, the current, of an occurrence, even though it's, it's worse now than it was. But in 1952, uh, what was called the Great Smog of London killed 8,000 people. And that was mm. just in the 50s. Mm. Um, this, I thought, was an interesting statistic that <coughs> producing heavy crude oil uh, increases the chance of air pollution by 40% rather than producing light crude oil. So that uh, goes into the, uh, the oil refining process. Um, according to the Lancet Journal, air pollution caused by waiting in traffic increases the chances of death caused due to a heart attack. Uh, that might be more from stress than from the pollution. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's cited as being the pollution. Um so I was uh, kind of curious about uh, some of these facts. Um, sorry, I'm just trying, looking through my uh, my notes here. Uh, oh, you know what? Forgive me. I lost my place. There's a lot of data in front of me here. Mm -hmm. I know um, how that feels. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
uh, here we go. Um, about uh, diseases that are caused by air pollution. Uh, interestingly, there is a new uh, disease uh, called the Beijing cough, and it, it's actually been been labeled as a uh, as a condition, and it's mostly um, referred to by foreigners who visit Beijing because they say when they go there they get this cough and then when they leave it goes away, and people who live in Beijing have a, also have a persistent cough, but it because you know there's not a lot of news about that coming out of Beijing. It's mostly coming from people who visit there, and then come out of it. And that had reminded me of uh, an anecdotal story. When I was in school, I had a friend who was from China, and uh, he said we were talking about China, and I said I had heard that there was a lot of bad pollution there. Uh, there's a lot of places where they burn uh, industrial wa waste, they burn electronic waste in the open air. And he said, yeah, that is true. In fact, there are some cities in central China where if you look at it on a satellite photo, the city is actually a black dot. Um, because of how dirty the air is. And I just thought that was interesting. I don't have any specific data to back that up, but that was just an anecdotal story from someone who lived in China. Hmm. We have um, a show that we did with uh, Klaus Kahnlein, uh the Ottomans, mm -hmm. talked about the SARS epidemic. It was that took place, and, and it was because it was in moments where they did a lot of going So I think there is something to that. If you were cutting out a little bit there when you said that, can you just repeat that again, please? I was just saying that uh, if, if listeners want to go back and listen to the show that we did, Virus Mania, the interview with Dr. Mm -hmm. Klaus Kahnlein, where we talked mm -hmm. about the SARS epidemic and how it was tied to all the industrial that was in Guangdong province in China. Uh, mm. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, China is one of the biggest culprits. Um, <clears throat> looking at the uh, at some images on uh, Wikipedia here, there's a chart of global deaths caused by air pollution, and China tops the, the list. Um, mm. So it's China and Russia. What's that? The list, you said? Oh, the list. Yeah, the list of, of deaths from air pollution. Uh, now, this chart specifically is from 2004, but um, it said deaths per 1 million people, uh, urban, urban air pollution deaths per 1 million of the population, uh, greater than 400 uh, and... Uh, or, I'm sorry, spanning from 250 to 400 and greater is uh, China and Russia. Um, there's uh, some parts of North Africa and some parts of Eastern Europe. Um, but China is the greatest culprit there. Um, <clears throat> so America and uh, Europe and some parts of uh, East Africa are the next on the list. Uh, and then it goes down from there. It looks like some of the cleanest places to live are um, northern South America, uh, Greenland, and some parts of, uh, of of southern and eastern Africa. Mm. And then, of, uh, of course, eastern New Zealand is listed as no data available. <laughs> so. mm. Okay. That's where you want to go. But that's yeah. that's the general... 
the general information that I have on on air pollution. I just thought this uh, this recent study was really interesting, and I, you know, I've known that that air pollution, just as a layman, uh, known that air pollution was a problem, but I didn't realize that it was such a drastic problem that so many people uh, were dying from that every year, and that it can be documented as such. Um, interestingly, too, with all of, like we did last week's show on smoking, and um, you know, the, the scare around lung cancer being caused by smoking and by secondhand smoke. And looking at this, uh, you know, they, they fully admit in the data that the leading cause of lung cancer is air pollution. Um, mm-hmm. so, but you don't hear that very often in the, in the mainstream. Yeah. And, you know, considering the fact that every single time anybody dies of lung cancer, they will blame it on smoking, I wonder if these figures are actually artificially low. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard when you get the data, especially, I mean, with an organization like the WHO. Um, I'm sure that the people working within the organization are, are on the up and up, that they really want to get the truth out. But, you know, who's to say after this data goes through the entire process um, and, you know, has been processed and has been edited, uh, what the figure, you know, how accurate the figures are. I would tend to think that they're usually pretty low. Yeah. Let's... Um, Let's move on to uh, agricultural pollution. Erica, do you have some uh, some information to help us learn more about that? Yes, some more positive information. Yeah. <laughs> so um, <laughs> <laughs> to start your day. Um, so uh, yes, environmental pollution. We actually did a show on the evils of agriculture. Probably, I think it was one of our first shows back in January. Um, about uh, Lori Lierke's The Vegetarian Myth. It was January 19th. And um, so I'm going to share just a little bit of information from that show just to kind of update people on um, what we're dealing with here. But um, yes, agriculture, the food you eat. So um, I wanted to start off with the topic of endocrine disruptors. And um, it's spelled E-N-D-O-C-R-I-N-E, disruptors. And um, these are basically chemicals that at certain doses interfere with the endocrine or hormone system in mammals, so all animals. Um, These disruptors can cause cancerous tumors, birth defects, other developmental disorders, And any system in the body that's controlled by hormones can be derailed by hormone disruptors. And if you're listening in and you're interested in reading more about endocrine disruptors, there's a lot of articles on SOT carried about it. One of them is called Endocrine Disruptors Really Do Suck. So I I always (laughs) refer to that article. But just I want to introduce this idea because it really pertains to agriculture toxins. Um, So the Environmental Working Group um, created a dirty dozen of endocrine disruptors, and they're the 12 worst, according to their organization. And I'm just going to list them here so you can get an idea of what an endocrine disruptor is. Um, The number one is BPA, bisphenol A. It's a plasticizer used in all plastic products, it's very been very controversial because it's of its use in baby bottles and pacifiers and things like that. 
it's uh, kind of termed as synthetic estrogen. Uh, the next one is dioxin, um, which, you know, is another, uh, comes from um, in any industrial processes. Atrazine is an herbicide, and we'll get into that later. Flatelets, um, plastic, another plastic product that's used in food containers, food wrapping, things like that. Um, Paracorlate, uh, compound in rocket fuel, uh, fire retardants or flame retardants, lead, arsenic, uh, which was mentioned, um, a coal-burning byproduct, mercury, um, perfluorated chemicals or PFCs, that's what you find in non-cook or non-stick cookware, um, organos, organophosphate pesticides, and glycol ethers. And the two that I want to cover today, uh, mainly one, but the two is atrazine and the uh, pesticides. So um, there's been a term kind of developed after a movie came out called Living Downstream, and it's about the effect of these type of um, chemicals on children and their development, brain development, physical development, and then their relationship with cancer. And uh, a woman named... Sandra Steingraber, she was a biologist. She made a, a movie based on a book called Living Downstream. I recommend it. Um, she termed these kinds of endocrine disruptors as toxic trespassers, and I thought that was a really good way to describe how these kind of things affect the human body. So the first toxic toxic trespasser is atrazine. And we talked a little bit about this uh, the show before last um, because it's produced by the corporation called Monsanto, or, or sorry, Syngenta. And Monsanto is looking to buy out Syngenta, and that's still kind of an ongoing thing. But uh, atrazine is one of the largest selling herbicides in the world. It was banned in 2003 in Europe, and the same year, um, the EPA in the United States re-registered it as a compound that could be used. Um, it's the largest uh, chemical contaminant of water, and um, according to Dr. Tyrone Hayes, who wrote an article, and it's actually in the movie, uh, Living Downstream, he wrote an article called The Frog of War, um, he basically said there is not a single aquatic environment that is atrazine-free. Um, hmm. 800 million pounds are used annually, and it affects all vertebrate classes of animals, fish, amphibians, birds, reptiles. And if our listeners are interested, you can read about Tyrone Hayes and his ongoing battle on SOT.net. Um, the next one, the next toxic trespasser that I wanted to cover is glyphosate. And again, for those who may not know, glyphosate is a herbicide. Um, it, it's a weed-killing chemical developed by Monsanto in the 1970s. It's the key ingredient in Monsanto's Roundup. And it's um, the massively used now, especially in the United States and growing in other countries, in GMO and Roundup-ready crops. So a Roundup-ready crop is a genetically modified crop that can be sprayed with this glyphosate and not die. So that should tell you a lot. <laughs> and um, so glyphosate has actually been patented 
in the uh, U.S. Trade, uh, U.S. Patent and Trade Office as a antibiotic. So, um, and the reason that it was patented was because uh, it can, it, it, the patent protects intellectual property. So basically, when you patent uh, this type of an herbicide ingredient, you can conceal documents from the public um, under intellectual property law, so to avoid liabilities and evade regulation. Um, there's been a lot of research coming out recently about glyphosate not just being the sole bad uh, toxic trespasser, but other inert um, chemicals kind of activate the intensity and the negativity of glyphosate on uh, the human body in particular, but also the environment. And so I have a few articles here that just kind of give an idea of um, what we're talking about with glyphosate. But before I go there, I just want to talk about um, this idea of agriculture and kind of what we're talking about, pollution, toxicity. And um, there's an excellent article written by Dr. Vandana Shiva. It's called Tilling the Soil with Pesticides. And this should give everybody an idea of where these pesticides come from. So she says, the old parad paradigm of agriculture has its roots in war, an industry that had grown by making explosives and chemicals for war for the war remodeled itself as the agrochemical industry when these wars ended. Factories that manufactured explosives started making synthetic fertilizers and gradually the use of war chemicals as pesticides and herbicides began. The 1984 Bhopal gas tragedy is a stark reminder that pesticides kill. The chemical push changed the paradigm of agriculture. Instead of working with ecological process and taking the well-being and health of entire eco-agrosystems eco with its diverse species into account, agriculture was reduced to an external input system adapted to chemicals. Instead of small farmers producing diversity, agriculture became focused on large chemical monoculture farms producing monocultures for a handful of commodities. She goes on to say, just as the gross domestic product fails to measure the real economy, the health of nature and society, similarly the category of yield, fails to measure real costs and the real output of these type of farming systems. According to the FAO, industrial monoculture agriculture has pushed more than 75% of agrobiodiversity to extinction. 75% of the water of the planet is polluted owing to intensive irrigation of chemical-intensive industrial agriculture. And the nitrates in water from industrial farms are creating dead zones in our ocean. Chemical industrial farming has led to a 75% land and soil degradation. Jeez. So, yeah, positive, uh. positive. So I don't want to take too much into going into the glyphosate, but it's been carried a lot on SOD. I just want to mention some really important points about this um, chemical and, um, you know, kind of going along this idea of agriculture. Um, there's an article that was carried back in 2013 
uh, called Big Pharma Fallout, and it was actually carried by the Honolulu Weekly, which was like a local paper in Hawaii that actually is no longer publishing articles because they didn't get enough funding. But um, mm. they talk about um, herbicide, herbicides and how this, the um, 527 million pound increase in herbicides from 1996 to 2011, and that's actually from the USDA. Um, GMO ag falls under the umbrella of this industrial monoculture and relies heavily on these synthetic fertilizers and pesticides. The Pesticide Action Network of America, more than 5 billion pounds of pesticides are used in the U.S. annually. And um, a man named Anthony Samsol, uh, independent scientist specializing in hazardous environmental chemicals, published a report along with senior research scientist MIT professor Stephanie Senoff um, in the journal aptly called Entropy, <laughs> found <laughs> that glyphosate was pervasive in our soils, food supply, and is extremely destructive of beneficial soil bacteria leading to an overgrowth of destructive pathogens. The same holds true for bacteria in the human intestines. And the notion that glyphosate has minimal toxicity in animals, um, which is popularized by Monsanto, of course, has prevented farmers from using caution when applying it to crops. Samsel learned the USDA was not testing glyphosate in the food supply and wanted to know why since they test for every other herbicide, pesticide, and fungicide. And he stated that it seems odd that they were not testing the most widely used herbicide in the planet. And, of course, the USDA's response was budget constraints, right? Oh, we don't have the money to test for that. So another article, and then this should wrap it up here because I don't want to get too depressing on us, is... Um, called uh, What's Your Daily Value of Glyphosate? And it was written by Catherine Frompovich, from and we've shared several of her articles on these uh, shows. But she basically talks about um, the daily dose that humans are getting and why it's not labeled and why we're not getting today your daily dose of glyphosate is this much, right? It's, it's another one of those things like the air pollution thing. You know, you're just not giving, being given information. So there was another, the International Agency for Research on Cancer produced a monograph and it's called the Evaluation of Five Organophosphate Insecticides and Herbicides. And um, it basically, the IARC's research, the herbicide glyphosate, the major component in Monsanto's Roundup, has been classified as probably carcinogen, carcinogenic to humans. I love how they use the word probably, right? So... Um, <laughs> Basically, they were studied. The Environmental Protection Agency classified glyphosate as possibly carcinogenic to humans after reevaluation, and the U.S. EPA changed its class classification to the evidence of non-carcinogenicity in humans in 1991. So it's like I was saying how, you know, like atrazine, they like take it off the list for a bit, and then they bring it back when they figure no one will will notice, right? Hmm. 
Glyphosate is currently the highest global production volume of all herbicides. The largest use in the world is obviously agriculture. It's increased sharply since the development of GMO crops and has um, been used in forestry, urban, and home applications. Um, one last thing about glyphosate, and we could do a whole show on this, is that um, it's being used now to spray on um, crops that are being finished. So according to a, a wheat farmer, he said that um, they spray this uh, glyphosate to decant things like wheat um, and that consumers are eating products made from wheat flour are undoubtedly consuming minute amounts of Roundup. An interesting aside, malt barley, which is made into beer, is not acceptable in the marketplace if it has been sprayed with this pre-harvest Roundup. Lentils and peas are not accepted in the marketplace if it has been sprayed with pre-harvest Roundup, but wheat is okay. And this farming practice greatly concerns me as a farmer as it should concern others of wheat products because it can be sprayed and you have no idea. Again, back to that idea of what's your daily intake. Um, yeah, I mean, I have tons more stuff here, but I know that we have a lot to cover. If people want to get really excited and, and, and happy, you can read that article. <laughs> because they go, they make point after point after point about how this stuff is toxic. It's an endocrine disruptor. It is in almost every product, like Gabby was saying, on the American food market, 80% of, you know, products in the grocery store. So, yeah, good stuff. Okay. <laughs> oh, I will say, I wanted to add real quick, I forgot. Um, there was an article on Signs this week about Monsanto herbicide faces global fallout after World Health Organization labels it a probable carcinogen. <laughs> um, and it goes through all the different countries that are doing outright bans like Colombia, Bermuda, Sri Lanka, and then eminent bans, places like Brazil, Argentina. And um, it's actually kind of a more positive take on it because citizens are coming out, people in countries, they're saying, forget these companies, we're going to do our own thing to get rid of these this toxic chemical in our food system. So, th so that's kind of a positive on all that. Yeah, that's, that's great. Yeah. That's we great. needed to hear that. Thank you, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. I knew I had some good news. <laughs> <laughs> now I feel 1% better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's delve deeper into the good time, happy feelings, and have Gabby go over radiation. Yes, this is a topic hardly anybody talks about it anymore um, in the health community. Don't worry, I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna talk about it. So in 2011, I reviewed the radiation research because Fukushima happened, and I basically found a publication uh, titled Chernobyl: Consequences of the Catastrophe for People and the Environment, 
and it was published in the Annals of the New York Academy in 2009 by by Russian scientists from the Russian Academy of Sciences and a scientist from Belarus. So um, basically, they say that you know, in, uh, for those who don't know, you know, the Chernobyl catastrophe happened in uh, 1986, and the radioactivity which was released from the Chernobyl power plant it fell upon hundreds of millions of people, and the resulting levels of radionuclease were hundreds of times higher than that from the Hiroshima atomic bomb. So mm-hmm. while we briefly review this topic, keep in mind that um, compared with Chernobyl, radiation levels around Fukushima are four times higher. You know? mm-hmm. Fukushima happened in 2011, Chernobyl in 1986. So, well, what we have here on this topic is more of the same. Authorities typically deny the facts and documented data by scientists concerning dangerous levels of radiation among the population, food, and the environment. And uh, it took 10 years after Chernobyl for the medical community to admit, oh, yeah, we're seeing more weird diseases all around the exposed population, you know. Um Many people, uh, quoting the Russian scientists, many people suffer from continuing chronic low-dose radiation 23 years after the catastrophe, primarily due to consumption of contaminated food. And um, given an identical diet, a child's radiation exposure is three to five times higher than that of an adult. And uh, more than 90% of the radiation burden nowadays is due to cesium-137, which has a half-life of about 30 years, and um, and it can take then uh, roughly three centuries to clear out, in quotes. Um, so, yeah, children are especially vulnerable. Then um, radioactive elements such as cesium-137, strontium-90, plutonium, and americum, which was released from the Chernobyl catastrophe, are known to continue to be mobilized for decades, even up to several hundreds of years into the future. Agricultural products have contained and will continue to contain radioactivity in most parts of the world, you know. Um, um, Due to the nature of the metabolism of the radionuclide, so to speak, more than 20 years after the catastrophe, due to natural migration of radionuclides, dangerous consequences in these areas have not decreased, but actually increased and will continue to do so for many years to come. So we have the problem here that, you know, we have this catastrophe, Fukushima, Chernobyl, and we can feel the effects increase in decades to come, not decrease, but increase, you know. Then, uh, you know, radiation causes damage to the body due to the exposure to ionizing radiation, which causes, you know, inflammation. It causes oxidative stress. It causes damage um, uh, for radicals, you know. And uh, after, the interesting thing is, after Chernobyl and not before, all sorts of diseases started to appear, which, you know, it basically in some way enriched the medical vocabulary. And um, stuff such as vegetovascular dystonia, 
appeared, which is the dysfunctional regulation of the nervous system involving the cardiovascular and other organs. In the Western nomenclature, it could be called like um, an imbalance of the autonomic nervous system. And uh, another term which was uh, created was incorporated lung life radionuclease, which is basically structural damage to the heart, to the nervous system, to the glands, to the reproductive, reproductive system. Another disease which was created was acute inhalation lesions of the upper respiratory tract, which is basically like asthma. Um, chronic fatigue syndrome started to appear, not before. And it was unrelieved fatigue without obvious cause, periodic depression, memory loss, um, joint pain, chills and fever, mood changes. You know, lymph nodes around your neck, lymph nodes around your neck that are very sensitive, weight loss, um, lingering radiating illness syndrome, which is excessive fatigue, dizziness, trembling, early aging syndrome, which is a divergence between physical and chronolo chronolo chronological age, both in, you know, in adults, but also in children. And, um, Yes, radiation, the effects of radiation to the body is extremely, you know, damaging. Um, the other thing that the Russian scientists and the scientists from Belarus discovered is that infections, infections in general go in the right. And they speculate whether it is activation and dispersion of dangerous infections due to mutational changes in microorganisms or due to, you know, weakening of the immune system. The answer, the we don't know, but <clears throat> but it is true that infections go on the rise. And as an example, they quote that tuberculosis became more virulent in contaminated areas of Belarus um, from 1993 to 1997. Ten years afterwards, all the hepatitis viruses went on the rise. Viruses B, C, D, and G. And um, again, uh, if we recall our virus mania show, we don't know if it's like our own genes being activated by an external factor or what, but uh, mm -hmm. the truth is that these diagnoses appear more often. Herpes viruses were also um, very virulent in heavily, heavily contaminated areas of Belarus seven years after the catastrophe. And uh, the soil, which has like natural bacteria such as agrobacterium, Enterobacter, Klebsiella, they absorbed cesium-137 and um, through the growth of plants and the natural cycle of food production, it basically disrupted um, gut bacteria and uh, there was a sharp increase in pathological E. coli in the intestines of children, you know, living in the Ukraine that were evacuated from Chernobyl. Hmm. So, yes, and... Um, the radionuclides continue to build up in plants over recent years. That's the most recent data we have. Research has been very censored, so you know it's very appreciated that this Russian scientist published uh, this this article, which synthesizes thousands of art, uh, scientific journal articles. It's basically like a book, and um, and the the main message of this is that it is a huge problem. And it's going to be um, more of it, not less of it, with the ears. And uh, and the Fukushima is four times worse than Chernobyl, so mm. it can 
I don't know how to synthesize that, probably best in the words of Professor Chris Bresby, who was the, um, I'm not, I'm not sure if it's still the, uh, has the same role, but he was scientific secretary of the European Committee on Radiation Risk. Um, and, uh, he spoke on a meeting which took place in Stockholm, in Stockholm in 2009. And he said, The global death yield of the nuclear age to 1992 has been horrifying. According to objective calculations by the European Committee on Radiation Risk, using weapons followed radiation exposure, there has been, up to 2003, 61 million cancer deaths, nearly 2 million infant deaths, nearly 2 million fetal deaths, There has been a loss of life quality of 10% in terms of illnesses and aging effects, and the blame for these can be squarely placed at the door of those scientists and administrators, such as the ones at the um, World Health Organization, who developed and supported scientific risk models. There is a war, war crime far greater in magnitude than any that has occurred in recorded human history. And then he quotes that these statistics are using weapons followed radiation alone. You know, we're not talking about Chernobyl, Fukushima. We're talking about weapons, you know. And on that, and on that perspective, you know, what we're not told, yes, there has been Hiroshima and the odd nuclear weapon here and there, but there has been really over 2,000 nuclear explosions conducted in various places around the world from 1945 to 1998, you know. Hmm. And uh, yes, and this is what we're dealing with right now. Hmm. Hmm. I'm sorry, but I don't know how to describe that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for slapping us upside the head with that Yeah. I don't know how much more of this I can take. <laughs> It's an awful job, but somebody has to do it because nobody talks about it anymore. This is like, you know, a massive catastrophe. You know, there is no precedent about mm -hmm. it in history. And then people ask, why do I get sick if I am healthy? You know, I'm sorry. <laughs> It's a little bit more complicated than that. Well, Tiff, do you want to, uh, should we go on to your topic here and talk about Agent Orange a little bit? I guess. <laughs> <laughs> If I can manage to, to muster through it. Okay. <laughs> um, Agent Orange, brought to you by Dow Chemicals and Monsanto, the makers of DDT, PCB, dioxin, and aspartame. Actually, Agent Orange is a blend of three different poisons. So it's a trifecta of poisons, essentially. It's a 2,4-D, which is called dinoxyl, and 2,4-5-T, which is called trinoxyl, and it also contains traces of TCDD, also known as dioxin. So in some of these cases, They'll be called Agent Orange, even though they're referring to dinoxyl or trinoxyl or dioxin. But they're all, you know, poison and they're all dangerous. But 
they're sometimes all lumped into being called Agent Orange. Um, but dioxin, dioxin is a byproduct of herbicide production, and TCDD is the most toxic of the dioxins. Uh, it's been classified as a human carcinogen by the EPA. Uh, dioxin is considered the most one of the most toxic substances ever created by man, but the World Health Organization has listed dinoxol as only possibly carcinogenic to humans. Again, that word possibly, possibly or probably. Um, so Agent Orange or dioxin was dumped over millions of acres of land in Vietnam and the surrounding areas during the Vietnam War. Uh, the U.S. Uh, government's stated object, objective for spraying was to kill all the forest cover for the North Vietnam troops, as well as any crops that they might use for food. And all throughout all the spraying of Agent Orange, uh, the government maintained that they had no idea about the long-term health consequences. Hmm. Um, so the U.S. government, they were aware of the consequences. Way back in 1960, they knew that even loads of conformities and the offspring of lab animals. But of course, the study was suppressed and the use of Agent Orange continued. Uh, the spraying only stopped after the study was leaked in 1969 and Agent Orange was officially banned in 1971, but still there's components of it that are being used to this day. Um, as recently as 2011, though, there was some secret spraying of Agent Orange in the Amazon rainforest. Um, in 1976, there was a reactor explosion at a trinoxol plant in a place called Nitro, West Virginia, which is a very ironic name. Um, it killed cattle, and uh, in 183 people, it caused a condition called chloracne, in which pustules erupt all over your body, and it can last for several years of harm. Um, dioxin poisoning can also cause nausea, vomiting, and persistent headaches. So all these symptoms were observed in this factory explosion. And as a consequence for poisoning, the town of Nitro Monsanto was ordered to pay $93 million in 2014, which sounds like a lot, but for Monsanto, it's probably nothing. Um, but the problem with dioxin is that it appears to act like a persistent synthetic hormone that interferes with important physiological signaling systems that can lead to alterations in cell development, cell differ differentiation, and cell regulation. Um, consequences are also seen in the reproductive and immune systems, and it radically alters the course of normal development. So the VA put out this list of diseases that are associated with Agent Orange, and all of them are quite nasty. Um, first one is ALM amyloidosis, which is a rare disease when an abnormal protein amyloids, uh, coincidentally amyloid plaques are found in uh, the brains of Alzheimer's patients. So this amyloid enters tissues or organs. Uh, there's chronic B-cell leukemias, which is a cancer that affects blood cells. Chloracne, which I mentioned before. Um, diabetes type 2. Um, Hodgkin's lymphoma, 
which is a malignant cancer characterized by progressive enlargement of the lymph nodes, liver, and spleen, and by progressive anemia. There's ischemic heart disease, which is a reduced supply of blood to the heart. Multiple myeloma, which is cancer of the plasma cells, the white blood cells in your bone marrow. Uh, Non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is a group of cancers that affect the lymph glands and other lymphatic tissues. Parkinson's disease, uh, peripheral neuropathy, uh, something called porphyria cutanea tarda, which is a disorder characterized by liver dysfunction and by thinning and blistering of the skin in sun-exposed areas. Uh, prostate cancer, respiratory cancers, including lung cancer, soft tissue sarcomas, which is uh, different types of cancers in body tissues such as muscle, fat, blood, lymph vessels, and connective tissues. Uh, some of the developmental effects of Agent Orange include anencephaly, which is a neural tube defect characterized by the absence of part of the skull in the brain, Down syndrome, hydrolysis with an accumulation of cerebrospinal fluid inside the cranium, which causes brain swelling. Um, Another one is spina bifida, which is another neural tube defect resulting from the failure of the spinal cord to completely close, as well as heart defects, urinary tract malformations, defects in the digestive tract, oral clefts like cleft palates and neoplasms. Um, Overall impact, uh, dioxin is a potent cellular dysregulator which alters a variety of pathways to disrupt many systems. Children, of course, are especially sensitive because they are still growing and their systems are not fully formed yet. Um, Dioxin is just one of the toxicants. Uh, Other ones are jet fuel, plastics, Pesticides uh, like DEET and permethrin, which cause mm. epigenetic diseases. Um, it's not just a disease in the exposed person or animal, but in up to three generations of their offspring. So the, the toxicants leave the DNA sequence intact, but it changes the way the genes turn on and off. So there's been reports coming out of the that uh, since Agent Orange was dumped, so much on their unresting jungles. Um, There's approximately 400,000 people were killed or maimed as a result of the Agent Orange exposure. Half a million children have been born with serious, serious birth defects. Um, I won't go into the details. I gave you like a taste of them before because they're so absolutely sickening and heartbreaking. But if you uh, go into the site page and the search function, just put in Vietnam, Agent Orange, you'll see some very, very heartbreaking photos of these children that are victims of the Agent Orange. Um, the World Health Organization did a study that only to four parts per trillion of dioxin in breast milk can cause severe deformities and death in human children. But the really crazy part is that they found in the breast milk of um, mothers in Vietnam, they found 1,450 parts per trillion in their breast milk. Um, As many as 
two million people are suffering from cancer or other illnesses caused by Agent Orange. Um, it's not just people that are suffering. Uh, the forests and the jungles in large parts of southern Vietnam have been completely devastated. It can take uh, 50 to two years to regenerate. The animals that lived in these forests and jungles have become extinct, and the rivers and the underground aquifers have been contaminated as well. Um, in America, um, Vietnam veterans have received some compensation. The, the VA is always having programs here and there uh, to compensate veterans for any damage they might have received. Um, but there's been very little compensation for Vietnamese victims. Uh, there was uh, $61 million pledged to uh, go towards cleanup programs and public health programs in Vietnam, but only $11 million of that money has been used for public health. Um, I mentioned earlier that certain components of Agent Orange are still being used, even though they're not technically defined as Agent Orange. But even worse news is that the EPA has refused to ban Agent Orange pesticide containing dinoxyl, which is one of the key ingredients. Um, this particular product is made by Dow Chemical, and Dow is happy because they have Agent Orange-ready corn waiting in the wings. So I guess Agent Orange-ready corn would be the equivalent of Roundup-ready corn or Roundup-ready soybeans. So I'm sure we can expect some more fraudulent studies saying that Agent Orange corn is safe to eat, blah, blah, blah. But the bottom line is you should always buy organic. Look out for the nanotech. Thanks, Erica. Um, if you feel very strongly compelled to eat the corn, or even better would be to skip the corn. Yeah. Um, but it seems like pretty soon we're going to have to skip nearly everything. <laughs> Just listening to this yeah. show, it seems like the air is not fit to breathe, the water is not fit to drink, it's not fit to eat. So we'll I'm, just have those really... big plastic bubbles. Yeah. <laughs> But then there's BPA in the plastic. Oh, this is I think that the Agent Orange is one of those environmental pollutions that has crossed the line and has become an achemical warfare. I mean, really, in my mind, the only difference between Agent Orange and depleted uranium is that orange was used under the guise of being a defoliant, and depleted uranium was simply referred to as a weapon. But I think that since the devastation is the same, I consider both of them to be weapons of mass destruction. Yeah, so I think I'm going to send up a prayer tonight to bring on the comets because Earth needs a radical <laughs> cleansing like yesterday. I don't know what can be done. What can be done? Is know. there any escape? <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, that's my Agent Orange spiel. Yeah. But I think that this, you know, a lot of this information certainly can send you just shivering to in a fetal position in the corner of the room if you, uh, yeah. if you think about it too often. But it's important to, uh, to look at things objectively and also, you know, continue with your day to day, continue doing the best that you can. You know, help people yeah. 
understand health and wellness, how to detox the body, um, and and how to clear your mind out, and how to view these things um, without letting it, you know, essentially give you OCD about everything in your environment, um, which is certainly possible. But uh, you know, it can also destroy your your day to day if you just uh, if you end up letting it get to you for too much. It um, just wanted to reiterate that point that it's it's important to learn about it, to know about it, and, and also continue on and stay resolute in what you're doing throughout the day. Mm-hmm. Good point. And you're not going to hear this kind of information on your local news station, that's for sure. Really? No. Everybody will be up in arms. <laughs> well, well, we can hear about Caitlyn Jenner, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Doug, what were you saying? No, I was just saying your local news station will just con- continue to keep on blaming everything on smoking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's true. Or get you worked up about gay marriage. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. That's that's the problem. One, 1. 1.5 million deaths caused by gay marriage. <laughs> <laughs> Man. Well, to uh, to help wrap us up today on the uh, on the happy feelings, Doug, do you want to <laughs> go over water pollution a little bit, and then we'll um, and then we'll go to Zoya's pet health segment. Sure. Yeah. So water pollution is a huge topic, and yeah, just to brighten everybody's day even more, we'll talk about the uh, toxic stuff that is coming right out of your tap in your home. Um, so uh, a great deal of the pollutions in our environment make their way into lakes and streams and oceans and into the water table that we uh, depend on for our fresh water. Um, in agriculture, uh, agricultural areas, they're facing a growing problem of having uh, elevated levels of nitrogen in their drinking water. Uh, that all comes from uh, agricultural runoff. Um, the conversion of grasslands and pastures into these big chemical-driven industrial croplands um, has eliminated a lot of the natural filtering of groundwater um, that native landscapes typically provide. So just by clearing off all the natural, um, you know, uh, vegetation, um, you know, natural uh, or not so natural erosion problems, um, it gets rid of that kind of natural filter that we usually uh, depend on for cleaning our water. Um, so nitrogen toxicity problems include a potential connection for cancer, as well as uh, thyroid and reproductive problems uh, in both humans and livestock. So um, I was looking into uh, an article on Mercola.com from back in January of 2013, and he said that unless you're getting your water from a well that is located 800 feet below ground surface, chances are your well water has been contaminated by some, if not many, toxic substances that have been dumped into the ground soil over the past decades. Um, So besides fertilizers like nitrogen, other common toxins that are dumped um, by the millions of pounds into the soil every year include herbicides, pesticides, estrogen-mimicking hormones, which uh, Erica was talking about, the endocrine dis- disruptors, um, drug residues, and heavy metals. Um, most of these offenders are far too small to be seen uh, by the naked eye, and they give off little or no indication of their presence by taste or smell. Um, even municipal water supplies are not safe Uh, as there are over 140 different chemicals in U.S. drinking water that are not regulated by the EPA. That's the Environmental Protection Agency. 
Um, the article says that more than 20% of U.S. water-treated systems violated key provisions of the Safe Drinking Water Act between, 19, uh, sorry, between 2004 and 2009 alone. Since 2004, the water provided to more than 49 million people has contained illegal concentrations of chemicals like arsenic or radioactive substances like uranium, as well as dangerous bacteria often found in sewage. So there's a nice, uh, nice little start start to your day there. Um, so uh, getting into a little bit on atrazine here, I know Erica covered quite a bit of this, so um, uh, I won't go too much into detail on it, but uh, there was um, an article published on SOT recently called, Is There Atrazine in Your Drinking Water? Um, this was actually uh, from globalnews.ca, and Global News is actually a big um, uh, Canadian uh, TV network. Um, so I was actually surprised to see, uh, you know, some, some truth coming out here. Um, so at, as uh, Eric was saying, atrazine is an herbicide used by farmers across North America for the last 50 years. Millions of pounds are dumped on, uh, on uh, crops each year. Uh, the runoff ends up in lakes and streams, sometimes ends up in drinking water. Uh, atrazine is the number one contaminant found in drinking water in the U.S. and probably globally around the world. Um, says the University of California Berkeley scientist Tyrone Hayes. And uh, Hayes, uh, again, Erica talked a little bit about him. Uh, he was approached in the mid-90s by the company Syngenta uh, to do experiments to find out the herbicide's effect on wildlife. He was uh, studying frogs at the time. So he was using um, frogs as, uh, as, as kind of test subjects on this. Um, when his findings showed that atrazine might impede sexual development of frogs, uh, his relations uh, with the company became kind of strained, to say the least. Um, he uh, ended up continuing the experiments himself, even though he was no longer su supported by Syngenta. Um, and as a result, he found that Syngenta reps were following him to conferences around the world. Uh, he started to become worried that the company was orchestrating a campaign to destroy his reputation. Um, so a little bit of corporate espionage there. Um, atrazine is associated with birth defects in humans as well as animals. Um, it sells more than $14 billion worth of, uh, sorry, Syngenta uh, sells more than $14 billion worth of seeds and pesticides each year. Um, and it actually funds research at some 400 different academics, uh, institutions around the world. Um, so I'm just skipping through some of this stuff here. Uh, atrazine is one of the most common contaminants found in drinking water. An estimated 30 million Americans are exposed to trace amounts of the chemical. Um, Hayes wrote an article published in the Proceedings of the National, of the National Academy of Sciences uh, a year and a half after quitting Syngenta and uh, exposed what he called hermaphrodism um, induced by, uh, in frogs by exposure to atrazine at levels 30 times below the EPA permits in water. Um, in a paper in Nature and Environmental Health Perspectives, Hayes reported that he found frogs with sexual abnormalities in atrazine-contained sites in Illinois, Iowa, Nebraska, and Wyoming. Um, he says, now that I have realized what we are into, I cannot stop it. Um, it is an, ent an entity on its own. Um, so, of course, Syngenta started a smear campaign against Hayes, uh, including buying up search terms on Google um, on his name and, and names associated with his research. So now, every time you, you look into anything on Atrazine or Tyrone Hayes, you will get um, a bunch of corporate smear propaganda. Um, so, moving on. 
Um, pharmaceuticals that are frequently uh, found in uh, in drinking water. Um, so these are the 11 most frequently uh, detected compounds. Again, I found this on the cola. Um, these were reported in a study in the New Scientist. Um, it was a comprehensive survey of U.S. drinking water. So uh, atenolol, sorry, atenolol is a beta blocker used to treat cardiovascular disease. Um, atrazine, as mentioned before. Our carbamazepine is a mood-stabilizing drug used to treat bipolar disorder. Estrone is an estrogen hormone secreted by the ovaries and blamed for causing gender changes in fish. Uh, gemfibrazil uh, is an anti-cholesterol drug. Uh, Meprobamate uh, is a tranquilizer used in psychiatric treatments. Uh, Naproxen, a painkiller. Um, Phenytoin, uh, an anticonvulsant used to treat epilepsy. Sulfamethoxazole is uh, an antibiotic. <laughs> TCEP, uh, a reducing agent used in molecular biology. And trimethoprim, which is another antibiotic. So every time you're having a drink from your tap, you're getting a nice little cocktail of pharmaceuticals there that are having... Uh, unknown effects on uh, on your biology. Um, talk a little bit about chlorine here. Uh, chlorine is deliberately added to drinking water as a disinfectant um, in municipal water. Um, the purpose being to kill off any kind of organic matter and uh, kind of sterilize the water before it actually reaches the end user. Um, human studies suggest that a lifetime of consumption of chlorine-treated water can more than double the risk of bladder and rectal cancers in certain individuals. Um, chlorine also kills off good bacteria um, found in the digestive tract. Uh, in and of itself, chlorine is not is relatively harmless, but the problem is that it leads to what are called disinfection byproducts, um, or DDPs. Um, and these are over a thousand times more toxic than chlorine itself. Uh, according to Mercola, out of all the stuff in your tap water, including fluorides, pharmaceutical drugs, chlorine, uh, DDPs are the worst. Uh, they include uh, compounds like trihalomethanes, or THMs, and haloacetic acids, HAAs. Um, the EPA regulates a maximum annual average of THMs at 80 parts per billion and HAAs at 60 parts per billion. See that these are actually measured in parts per billion, so that's how toxic they actually are. Um, of course, the ideal amount is zero. Um, another chemical that is deliberately added to uh, water supplies um, in some municipalities, um, not all of them, thank goodness, uh, is fluoride. Um, it's uh, added to um, water supplies in much of North America. Uh, people in other parts of the world are actually lucky on this one. Uh, it is claimed that the reason behind this is that it is helpful for teeth and helps protect teeth from cavities. Despite this claim, it has never been shown that ingested fluoride has any beneficial effect on teeth. Uh, the opposite has been shown, in fact, with uh, a condition called dental fluorosis. Uh, I'll get into that a little bit in a, in, in a while. Um, only topical administration of fluoride has ever been shown to, to show any kind of benefit. Um, ingestion has shown no benefit. Um, there was a video online um, with Michael Conant. Uh, he's an attorney with the Fluoride Action Network, or FAN. Um, and he summarizes 10 important facts about fluoride that everyone needs to know. It's a good video, worth watching. Um, the first one he says is that most developed countries don't fluoridate their water. 97% of Europe is non-fluoridated. Makes me want to move to Europe. Um, fluoridated countries do not have less tooth decay, 
decay than non-fluoridated countries, uh, despite the fact that this is what uh, Florida advocates will all, uh, often say. Um, according to the WHO, uh, there is no discernible difference in tooth decay between developed countries that fluoridate their water and those that do not. The decline in tooth decay in the U.S. Um, in recent years, last 60 years, um, is often attributed to fluoridated water, but it has likewise occurred in all developed countries, um, including those that don't fluoridate their water supply. Um, so that kind of throws that out the window. Um, third point, uh, fluoride affects many tissues in the body besides the teeth. It is an endocrine disruptor uh, that can affect your bones, brain, thyroid gland, pineal gland, and even your blood sugar levels. There have been over 34 human studies and 100 animal studies linking fluoride to brain damage, three including lower IQ in children, and studies have shown that fluoride toxicity can lead to a wide variety of health problems, including increased lead absorption, disruption of collagen synthesis, hyperactivity and or lethargy, muscle disorders, thyroid disease, arthritis, dementia, bone fractures, uh, bone cancer, uh, and it, it inactivates 62 enzymes and inhibits more than 100. Uh, it also leads to the inhibited formation of antibodies, genetic damage, cell death, uh, increased tumor and cancer rate, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it is nasty, nasty stuff. Um, fourth point was that fluoridation is not a natural process. Um, they're just pointing out that while fluoride does occur naturally in some areas and may end up in small amounts in water, uh, this is not the same chemical that's added to the water supplies. Uh, the fluoride that they add is uh, actually fluorosilic, fluorosilicic acid, um, which is uh, captured air pollution, con uh, control, sorry, captured by air pollution control devices of the phosphate fertilizer industry. It's actually industrial waste. Uh, and this is basically a covert means for the industry to dispose of their waste product by adding it to the water supply. So isn't that lovely? Um, mm -hmm. So it's basically a way for them to get rid, you know, to avoid the cost of disposal of this stuff by um, by by convincing people that it's good for them and having them eat it. Like it's so absurd. Like it just it just blows my mind that people actually fell for this. I mean, obviously there was a lot of uh, greasing of palms behind the scene, but it's unbelievable that in this day and age it's still going on. Um, point five, 40 percent of American teenagers show visible signs of fluoride overexposure. Um, so this is the, the main um, sign of fluoride overexposure is what I call what, what I referred to before, uh, dental fluorosis. This is when you see like people who have white flecks on their teeth. They kind of have these spots on their teeth that have these white spots on them. Um, it's a sign that children are receiving large amounts of fluoride from multiple sources, um, and it's not just a cosmetic issue. Uh, if fluoride is having a visually detrimental effect on the sur surface of your teeth, you can virtually guarantee that it's also damaging other parts of your body, such as your bones, brain, and internal organs. Um, sixth point, for infants, fluoridated water provides no benefit, only risks. Uh, infants who consume formula made with fluoridated tap water may consume up to 1,200 micrograms of fluoride or about 100 times more than the recommended amounts. Um, they, the, these, uh, this obviously um, shows no advantage to teeth, but they do have plenty of known harmful effects. Um, babies given fluoridated water in their formula are not only more likely to develop dental fluorosis, but may have reduced IQ scores. A Harvard, meta, um, Harvard University meta-analysis funded by the National Institutes of Health concluded that children who live in areas of highly fluoridated water have significantly lower IQ scores than those who live in low, fluoridated, uh, low fluoride areas. So 
Drinking fluoride makes you stupid. Um, fluoride supplements have never been approved by the FDA. Um, they, they actually try to get people in non-fluoridated areas to take fluoride supplements, which is ridiculous because, as has been said, it has shown no benefit whatsoever, and it has not been approved by the FDA. Um, fluoride is the only medicine added to the public water. Um, we are being medicated against our will. Fluoride is not an essential nutrient, and it is a medication. Uh, ninth point, swallowing fluoride provides little benefit to teeth. Uh, it is now widely recognized that fluoride's only justifiable benefit comes from topical contact with the teeth, and even the U.S. Centers of Disease Control and Prevention has acknowledged this. Um, the final point, uh, disadvantaged communities are actually most disadvantaged by fluoride. Fluoride toxicity is ex exacerbated by nutrient deficiencies, infant formula consumption, kidney disease, and diabetes, all conditions that are more prevalent in lower-income communities. Uh, just a quote here from the video, the simple fact is that poor populations need dental care, not fluoridation chemicals in their water. The millions of dollars mm. spent each year promoting fluoridation would be better spent advocating for policies that provide real dental care, like allowing dental therapists to provide affordable care to populations with little access to dentists. In short, fluoridation provides good PR for dental trade associations, but bad medicine for those it's supposedly meant to serve. Okay, so that's just... Uh, Lovely mood lightener there. Um, Golly! <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Um, so, you know, where do you go for your water, right? That's the big question. You know, if this stuff coming out of your tap is so, so toxic and terrible, what do you do? Um, so bottled water is not necessarily safer, and Gabby went a little bit into this, um, many brands of bottled water are just filtered tap water and may not have even received additional filtration. Um, so federal testing requirements for bottled water are actually more lax than those for communal water supplies. Um, finding a natural spring uncontaminated by agricultural industrial pollutants is your best option. And um, there's actually a really cool website out there called findaspring.com, and it's essentially just a, a, Google, a Google Maps um, extension that uh, shows different springs um, in your area. Like you can look at where you are on a map and it charts out all the different springs um, around there. Um, it's all just user generated so people will find a spring and they'll kind of post it there. Uh, so it is important for you to get the water tested if you're going to use any of that. Um, you know, it, people people will get the, the stuff tested and, and kind of post what the results were, but uh, it's always a good idea to get the, the uh, water tested yourself. But uh, it is possible in this day and age. A lot of times these places aren't that far outside of cities um, where you can go and get, uh, get you know, fresh spring water. Um, outside of that, uh, the charcoal filters that you can get, like uh, Brita filters, um, I don't know if our international uh, listeners are going to know what Brita's are, but they're basically these, uh, these water jugs that you pour the water into the top and it uh, just through gravity uh, feeds through the water. Um, they don't do very much. They do remove a good percentage of chlorine, uh, so that's good, and they do also remove uh, some lead, uh, but they basically do nothing for fluoride, um, volatile organic compounds, or other metals. Uh, reverse osmosis systems are probably your best bet, um, and these are basically, uh, what it does is force the water through a, uh, a membrane that filters out all, a, a lot of the, uh, the contamination. Um, it that actually does remove a, a good percentage of the fluoride, about 80%. Uh, 
um, which is notoriously hard to remove. Um, it also removes all sorts of contaminants, including herbicides, pesticides, lead, disinfection and byproducts, and uh, even all those, but the smallest of vi uh, viruses and protozoan cysts. The one problem with it is that it actually wastes a lot of water. So you actually end up, um, you know, I think, I think it, it's something like 10% of the water actually ends up stuff that you can drink. Um, another one that's really good is a whole house carbon-based water filtration system. And this is really good because even though it's quite expensive, it actually will filter the water at the, the point of entry to your home. So that means that it's not only for like individual taps, but your showers, your sinks, all that kind of stuff that is actually filtering that water as well. Because a lot of these compounds can actually be absorbed through the skin. So when you're taking a bath or taking a, um, taking a, a shower, chances are you're getting, you know, it's, it's basically the same thing as drinking tap water. Um, hey, Doug. Fine. Um, oh, terribly, sorry, yeah. I'm terribly sorry I got to cut in. We're, we're going to run out of time and we got to go to Zoya's. Shut yeah, up, Wesley. No worries. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. I'm basically uh, done anyway, yeah. <laughs> well, that was a lot of info. I'm really sorry we had to cut you off there. But let's uh, oh, no let's let's go to Zoya and then uh, we'll um, we'll be back shortly after. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the pet health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. Today's topic is very strange and quirky behaviors of your pets, particularly dogs and cats. Some of them are pretty straightforward, but some of them are very strange. Hopefully you learn something interesting today. Okay, so let's start with dogs. Why they are chasing their tails? In most of the cases, it can be simply a fun way for your pet to expand their excess energy. But it can also be an indication of pre allergy, dermatitis, and anal gland problems. In some cases, tail chasing can be a sign of obsessive-compulsive disorder. If you can't distract your dog from chasing her or his tail, or if you suspect they have a medical condition, you should speak to your veterinarian. Next behavior is licks and kisses. We all know that this is their way of showing affection. Plus, they probably figured out that licking you tends to get your attention. Of course, there are other reasons dogs lick you. Some researchers say licking is a sensory tool for dogs similar to uh, reaching out and touching something. Another explanation could be that canine mothers lick their puppies, and puppies lick their mothers and litter mates for grooming and social reasons. So, so this natural behavior continues into adulthood. Additional advantages of licks is uh, lysozyme, a strong antibacterial agent that is part of dog saliva. It is known to attack the cell walls of many uh, gram-positive bacteria, aiding in defense against infection. That's why dog saliva has been said by many countries, uh, cultures to have curative powers in people. Next one is dogs cocking their heads. Exactly why dogs cock their heads to the side remains uncertain, but behaviorists speculate that canines are trying to make sense of what they hear. They also might be trying to pick out a keyword like walk or fetch to find out if, uh, if uh, what you're saying will lead to something fun or rewarding. Another reason your pup might tilt their head is to more accurately determine the location of a sound. Next behavior is why dogs eat their poop. Pets may eat poop for a variety of reasons. Medical problems are a common cause, including uh, pancreatic insufficiency, or enzyme deficiency. 
Intestinal malabsorption and uh, gastrointestinal parasites are also common medical reasons that can prompt a dog to eat his or own poop. This is why it is recommended for dogs to have their stools checked by the vet's office every six months to make sure they are parasite-free. Healthy dogs can acquire intestinal parasites from eating feces, so uh, twice early stool analysis is a great idea for all dogs. The pancreas of dogs does secrete some digestive enzymes to aid in the processing of food, but many dogs don't secrete enough of those enzymes and wind up enzyme deficient. Since the feces of other animals are a source of digestive enzymes, uh, dogs with a deficiency will recycle by eating the enzyme-rich poop. Yep. Another strange behavior is why do dogs walk in circles before lying down? This curious canine behavior dates back to prehistoric times when dogs literally had to make their own beds. Although domesticated dogs have adapted to living with humans and can easily be house trained, they, are still retain, they still retain some of their wild ancestors' survival instincts. Doggy beds and pillows have uh, having been always been around. So wild dogs uh, had to pat down uh, tall grass and underbrush to make a comfortable bed for themselves and their pups. The easiest way to prepare the night sleeping area was by walking around in a circle. The rounding ritual may also have served as a safety precaution. In the wild, the circling would flatten grasses or snow and would drive out any snakes or large insects. Circling the area and thus flattening it leaves a visible sign to other dogs that this territory has been claimed. So even though our dogs now sleep on cushions, the behavior endures. Next one is why dogs like things that stink. Although experts aren't sure why dogs like to roll in stinky stuff and eat uh, rotten things, some believe that pets are marking themselves with their most prized possessions, guaranteed to impress all their two- or four-legged friends. It's like being a furry Fabio with a big gold chain and a shirt unbuttoned to, to below the ribcage. Wearing stinky stuff is like a designer label for pets. Dogs not only have millions more scent receptors than humans do, they are also polar opposites to, uh, from us when it comes to choosing scents that uh, attract rather than repel. Uh, though we like aromas that are fresh, floral and fragrant, our dogs prefer the dirty, dead and disgusting, or the rank, uh, rancid and revolting. Uh, to us it's disgusting, to them it's divine. It also explains other dogs' behavior, like sniffing other dogs' butts. It's a dog's way of saying, hello, nice to meet you, to another dog. In the human world, uh, this behavior could lead you in jail. In the dog world, this is a socially acceptable form of greeting. Okay, so what about cats and their strange behaviors? First one is this chattering at birds. Well, behaviorists aren't exactly sure why cats sometimes emit clacking sound uh, when they see a bird or an insect fly by uh, the window. Some behaviorists speculate that it has something to do with cats' pent-up frustration of not being able to go outside and catch the bird. Others think uh, that um, rapid-fire movement of the jaw is a Pavlovian instinct allowing uh, kitties to prepare their muscles for the act of killing prey. 
Now, if your cat goes outside, and even if you love your kitty and provide them with a species-appropriate carnivorous diet, but don't want them terrorizing and killing the neighboring bird population, don't forget to put a small bell on their collar, and birdies will have an early warning. Next behavior is headbutting. It's just cat's way of saying greetings. I trust you and feel safe. It's also one of his methods of sharing facial pheromones with you. Behaviorists actually call this curious behavior bunting. If your kitty doesn't bunt, it, it's nothing to worry about. It just might not be the headbutting type. Next one is bringing all kinds of presents in form of a dead prey. There are many theories regarding this behavior. Your generous feline might share her prey to thank you for feeding her, or she might simply be sharing her successful hunt with you, acknowledging that you are a member of her friends group. Also, when feral cats are able to obtain more food than they need to eat, they may bring the extra kills back to other members of the colony, especially juveniles, kittens, and nursing mothers. In other words, your cat may simply think you could use some help having enough to eat. Just remember not to pay too much attention to this behavior than needed because you may actually encourage it. And also don't punish your cat for something they do naturally. Instead, try to keep the cat indoors or, as I already said, put a bell on their collar so uh, that it will be more difficult for them to catch prey. Next behavior is chewing strange things. Plastic, dirt, carpeting, wiring, uh, milk jug rings. Uh, wool blankets, etc. If your cat eats those items and other, they may have a condition called pica. Cats may develop pica for medical reasons, such as gastrointestinal disorders, or it can stem from anxiety. Much like humans bite their nails or twirl their hair when nervous, uh, cats chew on non-food items as a way to cope with ex- uh, their anxiety. Now, this is a weird kitty behavior that you have to worry about. Uh, this object can uh, wreak havers on your feline's gums and GI tract. And if they're anxious, they, they will also need help with that. If you have cats who persistently eat non-food items, you should take them to your veterinarian. Next one is giving your, you a paw massage. It's when they rhythmically press their paws uh, one after another as if giving you a massage. Well, chances are that they either content and happy or try to alleviate anxiety or want to mark you with their scent. Uh, the instinctive behavior begins shortly after birth, when kittens uh, move their paws against their mother's uh, memory glands to stimulate milk flow. If your kitten continues kneading, um, uh, that's the name of this massage as an adult, uh, sit back and enjoy the massage. If it's truly out of hand, you should talk to your veterinarian. And what about cats' love of boxes and small places? Small places make uh, cats feel more safe and secure. In the wild, felines need to be stealthy to survive. So sleeping in the middle of a wide open field makes them susceptible to larger predators. Hiding in a small den, on the other hand, uh, makes them more difficult for predators to find them. So next time you find a kitty uh, napping in a box, just leave them there. Last behavior you need to actually pay attention to, uh, it's when a cat fails to cover his waist in a litter box. And it could be a sign of a medical or behavioral issue. 
There are many painful conditions like a urinary, a urinary tract infection or an injured paw that may cause cats to avoid the litter box. To rule out any health problems, take your cat to the veterinarian. If it's not medical, uh, then your kitty should be, um, uh, if, if it's something like you see a kitty leaving his poop uncovered uh, for other variety of reasons. Cats are picky about their litter and yours might not like the type you're using. Or maybe you don't keep it clean enough. Perhaps his box might be too small for him to turn in. If you have multiply cats, um, adding more litter boxes to your home may be a good idea. Well, this is it for today. Hopefully you found the information interesting and useful. Have a great day and goodbye.